it's really important uh, for, uh, for you as investors to actually communicate with your sponsor. Pick up the mm -hmm. phone, send an email, send a text message. If you're anxious about an investment and you shouldn't, just make sure that, you know, maybe you're worrying and it's not, you know, and, and you shouldn't. Let's get ready to scale. Everyone, welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale by Blue Lake Capital. I'm your host Ellie Perlman, and again, we have the trio today. Um, we have with us Ryan Rosletsky from Acquisitions and Jeanette Robinson from Investor Relations. For those of you who do not know us, we are a private equity multifamily firm, and we work with accredited investors and help them grow, build, and grow their wealth through passive real estate investing. Today, we have a really, really uh, exciting um, episode. Um, we're going to talk about really interesting topics. Um, the first one is something that a topic that I know many sponsors don't like to talk about. Um, and, you know, essentially, some of our investors have experienced it um, through other sponsors and other investments, um, capital calls, they're going to talk about what they are hopefully um, you're not engaged or involved in one um, and how it's different between the uh, high net worth individual world and the and slash syndication and in the institutional world, which, you know, capital calls have, um, you know, that it, it has a very different connotation. It's kind of part of, of raising capital. Um, then move to talk about rich session, um, which is, you know, very interesting. And also talk about a topic that is probably on everyone's minds, which is China, uh, China's economy, what's going on there, inflation, deflation, how is that going to impact the U.S. Um, economy and specifically real estate? Um, so all of that uh, we're going to cover today. So stay tuned. Um, it's it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fantastic. And uh, let's do it. Yep, definitely. So, you know, Ellie, it's been interesting and my heart really goes out to a lot of investors because there's been a lot of anxiety around capital calls. And I've had many, many investors reach out and ask us, you know, are you guys anticipating you're going to have to, you know, do any capital calls? And, you know, thankfully in the history of Blue Lake, we have never done that. I'm not going to say it could never, ever happen. Um, but, you know, it's causing a lot of investors anxiety. So and to be clear for anyone that has not gone through this, this is essentially, you know, when an operator has for some reason or another fallen short of being able to use the funds that they raised originally and need more funds to either, you know, keep the assets secure, complete a CapEx project or something along those lines. And they have to turn back and go to investors and say, hey, I know we already raised a lot of money, but we have a shortfall and we need more money. And when that happens, it creates a very unexpected expense for investors. So understandably, there's a lot of investors that have been really nervous about it. And there's been a lot of operators that have been indeed calling capital. What are you guys hearing from people about it? Yeah. yeah. Go, go, yeah, ahead, go, go ahead, Ryan. <laughs> it's, this is definitely a topic of conversation. So I, I just want to interject too and say, you know, I, I've even had personal um, colleagues that I used to work with at, at another company um, be involved in a capital call. And, and truth be told, they just weren't necessarily educated on the topic because it, it wasn't at the forefront, right? When, when trade out rates were 30% and asset values were 
um, through the roof and up 20, 30% year over year, where it's so important to read through the offering material to understand what the provisions are in the capital call, because um, ultimately, typically, I should say, it's, it's, it's usually a provision that's pro rata. So if you own 10% or 5% of, of the equity position or the capital stack um, and you call capital, let's say it's a million dollars or 10%, whatever proportion of the equity you owe, or excuse me, you're, you're in, invested in is ultimately what, what's being called of you. And the implications of, of not being able to understand that and, and have those funds readily available, there, there's some implications. So you, your, your shares can be diluted. You could potentially lose some equity or, or be forced to sell out of your equity position. Um, the, there's loss of future distributions. And then the worst case scenario, which I haven't seen, um, is lawsuits that could potentially come down. But um, I, I think it's a, a, a very fine distinction. And, and Jeanette, you mentioned shortfalls. When I think of capital calls, really, there's two different buckets. There's um, unplanned capital calls and planned capital calls, where on the planned capital call, um, a lot of fund structures use that. So let's say you're, you're, you're raising a $100 million fund, um, but you don't necessarily have to deploy that equity. So it's a way to ultimately manage the, the inflow and outflow of, of capital um, in the sense where if you don't have, let's say you're, you're purchasing or acquiring five properties, but you don't have them readily available, um, you're, you're maximizing your returns by say what, what they call is um, an initial drawdown. So let's say you commit a million dollars your, your initial drawdown might be 25%. So 250 grand up front at the fund's inception. And then as the sponsor acquires properties um, it is when you start having to call the remaining 750,000 or other 75% of the capital. So it, it's, those are planned capital calls with the same exception of um, it, for example, a single asset acquisition. Let's say you're going to hold the asset for 10 years and you buy a 2015 vintage product. Um, but the interiors might not necessarily be dated. There's not much deferred maintenance. So you don't need to raise all that CapEx up front. So maybe in year five, you're planning to do a value add program, um, spice up the, the exterior amenities. And then that $2 million is called in year five relative to upfront, uh, just for the simple fact that you're going to increase the IRR if you, if based on the cash inflow and outflow, if you call that capital in year five relative to upfront, you're going to use that capital regardless, but it's about the timing of when it's distributed. So that that planned capital versus unplanned capital call is is a, a pretty um, fine distinction that that many people need to understand as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And usually, when it comes to large family offices and institutions, the planned capital calls are kind of it's it's part of the the business cycle, the way that things are being done, because if um, let's say if um, JP Morgan allocates $50 million to a fund and the there's not enough assets for that money to be deployed, not all of it is being wired day one. So there's been an allocation. They're actually paying um, fees for the time period um, that money is being allocated but not wired, which is usually lower than um, the management fee during the investment period. But then once um, an asset or, or a portfolio is being identified, there's capital call where the sponsor goes back and says, okay, now we are calling capital. Some of it are all of it be wired within, let's say, you know, 14, you know, 21 days. Um, so that's a pretty normal capital call in the syndication world. Um, and, and just to be clear, um, 
just like Jeanette said, we have not called capital. Um, hopefully it's not a situation we're going to be in in the future. Um, but real estate is a bit unpredictable and you're being paid. Um, you're, you're paid for taking a certain amount of risk. Um, and so things can definitely change in the future. Um, however, and I can share with you what we're hearing from our investors of what they're been going through with um, with other investments, um, essentially in many cases because the increase in interest rates, all of a sudden the cash flow from the property is not enough to cover the debt. That's the number one reason for capital calls, and then uh, falling short on capex commitments and execution. Uh, essentially, you ran out of money. You need to keep renovating. You know the the asset. That's the second. Um, you know, most common reason to make capital calls. Essentially what happens, the sponsors have a few options. Either they're going to default and let the um, the uh, lender foreclose on the property and sell it for whatever amount they need, but most likely their investors are going to lose some or all of their investments. Because if you think about it, lenders are not really incentivized in maximizing the amount, you know, the price. They just want to get their loan back and they want to clean that asset out of their books. Right now it sits as a uh, liability. It's not an asset. So if, for instance, a $100 million deal, there's um, $60 million loan and $40 million in, in equity. And usually it's more than that because you need to account for GP fees and for CapEx and reserves and other things. But just for the simplicity of the example, let's just say $40 million in equity and $60 million in debt. If um, the lender wants to foreclose on the asset, then even if the asset is worth, say, um, they bought at 100 right now, NY is down, it's worth 90 million. They're not incentivizing for selling it for 90 million if it's going to take them three, four, five, six months. They can definitely sell it at 65 million or even 60 million or 50 million just to get it off their books and get paid and, and close that chapter on this asset. And what happens is that many times invest investors are left with a little bit or no capital at all and they're losing their investment. Now, um, what sponsors are doing, they're essentially calling capital. They're going back to their investors and they say, listen, things change. We cannot pay the debt and we need more money. We need more money so we can make payments to the lender. And so um, investors are facing two options. They don't have to participate and wire more money, obviously. But if they don't, they're going to be diluted because now instead of $40 million, there's $45 million in equity. And so there's five more, you know, million more mouths to feed. Um, and also, if they don't participate and nobody does, because maybe they're not liquid, but others do, then they're risking their initial investment, their, their um, you know, uh, the, the money that they have wired participating in, in, the, uh, in the deal. They're losing of losing their investment. And so... Usually there's a few deep pockets within the investor community and one or a couple step up and say, okay, we will, you know, we will take that position. Sometimes the way that it's structured because there's not enough cash flow. So it's really hard for um, sponsors to pay distributions for the new capital that is being called. Um, so many times they'll structure it as a pref deal or as, you know, give them some, 
some terms and say, hey, we need five more million dollars. We, we can't pay you right now. Cash flow is tight. But when we exit, you're going to get preferred return or, or um, we'll share with you, you know, you're going to get you know, higher returns uh, to compensate you for taking an additional risk. Um, and so it's really, but, but from what I'm hearing from Jeanette, it's really important uh, for, uh, for you as investors to actually communicate with your sponsor, pick up the mm -hmm. phone, send an email, send a text message. If you're anxious about an investment and you shouldn't just make sure that, you know, maybe you're worrying and it's not, you know, and, and you shouldn't because the sponsor is not planning on making any capital calls. Now, granted, you know, it depends on how um, honest the, the, the sponsor is. We've been reading some news about sponsors that said, you know, we're not planning on calling capital and then they have, you know, called capital. So um, I think it's very important to make sure that there's an open and honest line of communication uh, between, you know, the investors and the sponsor. And nobody wants to call capital in, in the private, you know, um, equity market. It's the worst thing that a sponsor can, you know, have probably, well, probably the worst thing is to foreclose on an asset and lose it to the lender uh, and lose investors' money. But capital call is, the se is second best, right? Mm -hmm. um, if, if best can be described uh, in, in that uh, situation. And um, it's important to invest with a sponsor that is also liquid. So if they need, they have enough money to, to fill in the gap. Um, so they don't need to go to there and, and you know, raise money and, and uh, do capital calls. But if you, if you follow the news, and I don't know if you guys uh, have been reading recently about that, almost, you know, all large real estate firms have you know lost and it's not necessarily in multifamily some of them more like you know in office and, and other asset classes they're returning the keys to the bank and i think it's it's unbelievable that um we're in in such you know an environment and that just shows me that nobody really thought that interest rates are going to increase the way that it did so quickly um and so high and also when it comes to office, I don't think um, any of the sponsors thought that um, that they're going to have to face such an unprecedented um, high level of, um, of, of or high or, or low level of occupancy. Um, so that combination is just deadly for at least for office. Um, but interest rate hikes that that has impacted, you know, every asset class is, you know, every asset class across the board. Yeah, um, I, I've seen some underwriting. So to your point, I mean, it's it's, it's the, the stark and unprecedented rate, rate hikes that really impacted a lot of groups. I mean, I, I saw some underwriting um, from from some sponsors in 2020, 2021, when, when rates were um, zero, and even their underwriting was relatively conservative. I saw 20 to 25 basis point increases in in, in the, the rate per year throughout the whole period, but it, it doesn't account for 25 basis point increases on a quarterly basis by the Fed. So it's it was just truly unprecedented. And I even looked back at some of these performers and said, okay, well, is it truly just capital market driven where NOI was up 10% above their, their pro forma, 
but but the shortfalls came down to the the interest interest rate cap replacements, um, and they just couldn't service the debt. So it wasn't a fundamental issue. I, I like to look at it like that. It's a capital market issue or it's a fundamental issue. Do you have enough cash flow to, to cover the the property? Um, and then the capital market side is, do you have enough cash flow to service the debt? And that that's the that's that's what's what's critical here. And you, you that's what you opened up with just a few moments ago is it, it's the interest rate environment that's absolutely crushing um, sponsors in today's environment. All right. Well, next, we're going to move to talk about recession, which is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, word. Um, but uh, it, you know, recession and rich is, is kind of uh, kind of clever, but uh, we're going to do that right after the break. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sun Belt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. Okay, so one of the headlines that I've been reading recently um, is about the recession. And it's, um, I think, you know, as someone who immigrated um, to the U.S., I, I think it's, it's pretty fascinating to look at the data and understand what, what is really going on. And I have to tell you that, um, you know, the U.S. has more millionaires than probably anywhere else in the world, if I were to guess. So there's, you know, almost 23 million millionaires. That's It's about, you know, close to 40% of the global millionaire community. Um, and, and, you know, I, I remember that in college, we studied, um, you know, we, we studied the U.S. history and part of it was the self-made men. And um, I, I found it fascinating. That was actually by far my fast, you know, the most fascinating, the most interesting topic uh, for me in college. Um, and just to, you know, learn about the concept of, of the self-made men and, and um, that if you work hard, if you try, if you work hard, if you give it, if you get everything that you have, you actually have a, you have a fair chance of making a decent life. Not necessarily, I'm not talking about becoming a millionaire. Obviously, I think the system, there's a lot to, to, to fix and a lot that can be done. Um, but it's really interesting what is happening recently. And definitely, you know, um, 2022 has, um, ha there's a lot of impact on household wealth. So about three and a half million people around the world lost their millionaire status uh, last year. And if we convert it to numbers, you know, the world lost about 11 trillion in household wealth, which is an insane amount. Um, and 6 trillion of that 11 trillion is in the U S alone um, compared, you know, the, the world has gained 16 trillion in back in 2021. Um, and it might, you know, those numbers might sound scary, but most of that decline was because um, of the, the a significant drop in valuation of stocks and bonds. Um, and stocks and bonds, you know, they mainly react to 
the the public's you know perception and i have to admit that um even though i do invest some of it some of my my money in stocks and bonds it's not the majority um of my uh wealth and um basically making sure that um you're you're pretty much diversified between that real estate and you know other Uh, investment vehicles that's very important that's the key of growing your wealth um, but I think it just speaks about uh, it speaks volume and and I think it's uh, it shows how real estate is resilient and I know it couldn't be it could sound funny right now because real estate looks like it's you know real estate just hop on this crazy ride and it's going up and down up and down um, but even if right now the you know cash flow can be tight sometimes, You really eyeing the exit and the valuation at exit and things will change. It's not always going to be like this. So if you need to exit right now, if your loan is due, you're in a bit of a bind right now. Um, if you bought an asset a year, two years, four years ago, and you still have a few years to hold the asset until your, your loan is due, you're, pro you're more likely, just statistically speaking, more likely to... to exit in a very, very different environment than uh, the environment we're having today. Um, you know, but even though the value of stocks and bonds have dropped, um, we still have about 60 million individuals um, that are still, you know, millionaires. And so um, if we're looking at high net worth individuals, so um, the uh, ultra high net worth individuals. So those with net worth of 50 million and above, um, that decreased by about uh, 22,500 people. So we can definitely see some, you know, movement um, and how valuation of um, some investment vehicles, um, you know, products have impacted um, the, the wealth, you know, and, and that's what it's kind of, it's, That's where the recession, you know, came from. Um, I, I don't know if if there's any, they're probably, you know, buying luxury brands. Sorry, products um, that has been impacted. Uh, I remember when COVID started, everyone thought that no one is going to go and buy, you know, Gucci, Prada, Louis Vuitton, Chanel. And the exact opposite happened because people did not spend money on travel because no one was traveling for a while. And they were stuck at home. And so they did, a, they spent a lot more time shopping. Um, obviously, right now, the situation is a bit different. Um, Jeanette, do you, what do you think about the, the recession? Um, and, you know, is it linked to investors' appetite to invest in real estate? Do you see, you know, maybe investors that lost even their high net worth or accredited investor, you know, status? What do you see on your end as someone who's been interacting with investors on a daily basis? Yeah, you know, it's actually really interesting uh, because just last night I was having a conversation uh, with an ultra high net worth, you know, individual. And I was actually um, kind of going back and forth with him on some ideas that you, Ellie, and I have, have been discussing about marketing, actually. And I was so I was kind of digging into him and asking him, what are some of your pain points? And, you know, what terms would be really attractive to you from a marketing standpoint? And, uh, you know, his feedback to me was from at least a marketing standpoint, what he wants to see 
in contrast to the stock market, what would catch his attention is stability and appreciation. Those are the things he's looking for because he has lost a lot of money in the stock market, particularly lately. He's taken quite a bath. And so, you know, when I hear about the, the rich session and when you hear crazy, crazy monopoly money numbers, right, like 16 trillion gained in 2021, I'm sure part of that was definitely from real estate because it was excellent, uh, you know, very, very strong in 2021. And that was also probably some stocks, um, you know, stock activity at the time as well. But then when you hear about massive losses and drops like that, that's not as common to real estate, you know, given the exception of maybe 08, you know, things like that. But generally, that is not how real estate behaves, but that is definitely how stocks behave. And so, you know, to hear the extreme rise and the extreme fall definitely made me suspect that it would be tied to stock and bond activity. And just like this investor shared with me last night, you know, that is painful. He doesn't enjoy it. And what he was, is looking for right now is stability. He just wants things to be calm, even if it's not sexy, even if it's not massive overnight increases. He wants the nice, slow, steady appreciation that that's what matters to him. And that's what he's looking for. And so, you know, I think the rich session definitely did tick down the number of, of accredited investors. I do happen to know of actually a couple of them that did lose that status. Um, but at the same time, you know, much to your point earlier, especially in the United States, being a millionaire is actually, I hate to say it, but it's, it's not that hard. It's, it's really not. It's not uncommon in America. You know, there's a lot of people that are still accredited investors. And I think in that uh, article that, uh, that we had taken a look at that was talking about it, uh, basically, it says that, um, let's see, I, I want to get the number for you because it was a good number. Jeanette, I want your bank account. If it's so easy to be a millionaire, I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should, you, should uh, you know write a you book should, about it and send it to all of our customers. Ellie's is way more interesting than mine. That's why I still just listen to Ellie. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing to do. <laughs> there's, there's, there was nothing easy about it. Nothing. No, but, there, but it, the it, opportunity is for yeah, and, well, and the opportunity really is here. That's one of the things that's very unique to the United States is it really is. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, when we're talking about being an accredited investor, that also can include the worth, the value of your vacation home, your jewelry, sports cars. A lot of people are actually net worth a millionaire than sometimes they even realize, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, but the, the point is, is, I mean, there's still... A, just a tremendous amount of, of money out there. Frankly, there's still a lot of investors that even if they're going through a rich session are still super rich, candidly, you know what I mean? And so I think that sometimes these types of articles uh, try to highlight basically the, the wealth distribution gap sometimes. And, and typically it's written from somewhat of a, a biased perspective because it's typically not a millionaire writing about another millionaire. It's a non-millionaire with, you know, strong opinions towards people that can qualify as millionaires, even though the reality is there's a lot more out there than I think most people realize. Yeah, and Jeanette, it, 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 what it comes down to is it, it's a temporary blip, right? So like when you think about it, so you mentioned the 2021 gains, we're still in excess of the 2022 losses, um, with the exception of one region, which was Japan, I believe. Yeah, so China, Australia, all the gains in 2021 were more than the losses that they've experienced. And you, you both touched on it. It's the correlation between stocks and bonds as the traditional investment vehicle. And Ellie also mentioned 
the, the, the disproportionate share of wealth in globally is highly concentrated to the U.S. It's, it's almost 40 percent of global millionaires are in the United States. And then you go into Europe, it's almost 30 percent. So so nearly 70 percent of global millionaires are concentrated in, in developed um, regions such as North, North America and um, and your Europe. So it, it's UBS is projecting um, the, the global millionaire pool to grow by 40% to, through 2027. So this is just a temporary kind of what I would default as correction, if you will, coming off a, a decade long bull run in the stock and equity, or excuse me, in the equity and bond market. So um, it, you guys kind of hit on, on all of the components throughout there, but I, I think it is relatively temporary um, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, um, you know, today, about 2.8 billion people um, have, you know, wealth below $10,000. And that number is, is staggering. And obviously, it's not going to be a discussion about education or, you know, wealth transfer. This is, you know, I think it's a very, very complicated, um, you know, topic. Um, I will say that the way that I see it, um, there's there's definitely a connection between uh, multifamily and real estate and and you know that topic because um, many times the tenants that live on our properties, which are mainly Class B, um, they have well they're there because either they cannot afford a house in an the area of their choice. And sometimes we do lose some tenants that bought a house and that's exactly the type of assets that you want to buy. But if someone is leaving your asset and going elsewhere, it's not because they're going to the competitor, but because they actually bought a house. These type of tenants, they care about their credit. So they're not going to skip in the middle of the night. They're going to pay on time because they know how important the, the maintaining their credit is to get a good mortgage so they can move out at some point and buy a house. Um, but it, it is really, you know, it saddens me to, um, to know that so many people, so many people cannot pay an unexpected, you know, medical bill. And, and I remember times where I, I was one of those people, um, you know, when, uh, when I was 19 years old, I already ran my own household and, Rent was the equivalent of $220 a month, and I could barely pay it, barely, barely pay it. Um, and today, you know, I, I stop many times, even when I'm driving to work, when I'm meeting a client, when I'm flying for a conference. Um, I just, I, I'm kind of randomly remember those times and say, you know, I'm in a very different place now. It almost looked like it happened, you know, to someone else that it was a bill that I, I couldn't pay. And, you know, buying food there, you know, I had to, to get help going with someone that was going to pay for my groceries. I mean, that's how bad it was. So being on the other side of it, being part of those 2.8 billion people is painful. Um, and the way for me to get out of it was through education. So I, I knew I wanted to be in real estate because I looked around and the only um, distant family members that I knew that had wealth, well, A, they were in the U.S. and B, they were in real estate. And that's what got me thinking 
that real estate is the way out. And I said, but I don't have money to buy real estate. So I'm just gonna, you know, I was a huge nerd. So I'm gonna use, you know, my my brain and, and go to the college. And I worked hard to get a call into college and um and then started right out of, uh, you know, out of college as, you know, I, in Israel, it's a bit different than here because you can become an attorney after four years or three and a half years in college, um, specializing in law, in, in legal studies. And I went to a real estate department um, in, a, in a very large um, law firm and I started my career that way. And I, because I wanted to be close to real estate, I wanted to be close to those people who are buying and selling and building, you know, offices and, and multifamily assets. Um, but it was through education. And, you know, I think education is, is really the key many times, maybe not for everyone, but for many people, that's the key out of, um, you know, where they are now. Um, so I'm a huge, you know, fan of, of using education to essentially pull yourself out of, you know, poverty. If you can do it, if you can, afford, if you have um, the ability to actually get into a good school and, and study hard. And it's not easy. It was not easy for me. I was working two jobs and um, working on my SATs and uh, trying to get in. And it, it was not easy, um, but I was determined and um, I know how we, we ended up talking about this out of, you know, you know, what it makes me think of, though, is so it's not it, it is education, but I think it's also financial literacy. And so, yeah. you know, um, one of the numbers that I was trying to dig up earlier that I did find is the median wealth per adult from 2000 to now 2022 has increased from $1,590 to $9,167. That is a ginormous increase, right? Um, and of course, part of that screams obviously inflation um, to an extent. But I think the issue is that even as people begin to make more money, they don't know what to do with the money that they're making. And they don't know how to make their money make money. And so that's where I think, you know, real estate is is critical because, you know, real estate is obviously one of the best, you know, investment vehicles that you can take to use to make money with your money. But I also think it's financial education and financial literacy. If people people just don't know that they can do it, you know, and it's kind of like when I talk to uh, someone that's investing for the very first time that they didn't even know they were accredited because nobody had really ever explained it to them. They didn't know they could use, oh, their 401k. So they thought, oh, I don't have enough money to, to invest in real estate. And then indeed they do. And so I think too, it's just sometimes those gaps of knowledge, whether it's formal education or you know people that are just really dedicated to lifelong learning and teaching themselves. I think both of those components you know, are really important in, in reshaping people's uh, success path. Yeah, you both yeah. brought up a great argument. So going back to your point, Ellie, that 2.8 million with less than 10,000 net worth, just for context, excuse me, 2.8 billion, billion. That is 53% of global adults, 53%. So in, in that inequality gap, so so that's, that, that's actually going to be a good segue into um, the, the Chinese liquidity crisis, but um, it, it's the emerging market. So when, when I when I said that around 65, 70 percent of global millionaires are concentrated in, in North America and Europe, 
that makes up 10% of the global population. So th- there's a bigger issue at hand is the affordability gap. So Jeanette just riddled off some numbers about the, the net worth um, of, of those kind of what I, what I guess you could define as more of the middle class growing um, four or five fold over, over the last decade um, it is really a component of the U.S. as well in, in some of these other developed markets where or developed regions in, in countries, I should say, whereas the, the, the inequality gap for the, the higher proportion of the global population is in the emerging um, countries that, that have the, the, the highest populace. So that that's where it, it becomes really difficult. And now you have China right now facing, which is one of the, the largest economies um, now facing liquidity crisis because of the, the impact and correlation on real estate in today's environment. Yeah, absolutely. You want to you know, you already started. You want to kind of might as well at this point. So um, I'll, I'll let you guys cover on the headlines that you've actually been forwarding to me. But um, what, what it comes down to is over the last decade for the, the, the real estate liquidity crisis in China is going to ultimately start to um, how would you define as overlap and have bigger implications on the global economy because it accounted over the last decade 40% of the global economy was was contributed to by China. But of China's economic growth, 25% of, of all economic activity in China today is, is tied to real estate in some form. And now you have the government kind of holding back and, and not aggressively lending and, and funding the, the what I would define as a verbatim, some of the, the news articles is growth at all costs. So it's, it's funding these developers um, that are now facing liquidity issues. And I, I can speak with, with experience too, is we worked with a, a Chinese developer about a year and a half ago, acquiring a, a high rise property out in Los Angeles. They took a 20% haircut, meaning it, it was it was sold, it was developed for 20% less than the acquisition price because they needed to liquidate their portfolio because the government's not bailing them out. So they need to self-liquidate and self-fund and, and restructure their debt. And to do so, a lot of it's asset liquidation. So they, they have to take haircuts. So th- there's a lot of downward pressure on, on developers. I think the number was 50 Chinese de- developers over the last two years defaulted in some form on, on their debt which is a massive number. So, I mean, I know you guys were, were reading articles about the largest um, uh, institutional kind of developer, owner, operator, asset manager in China facing the same thing. So if you guys want to kind of chime in and, and speak to that in a little bit more detail, that that was telling. It, it was a very compelling story. Well, and you know, before we even kind of jump into that, just to make sure everyone's on the same page with us here. So basically, if I understand it correctly, in China, this is, we're not talking about actually people's primary residence. We're talking about additional real estate assets that people invested in, you know, over the last several years. And basically uh, for a while, you know, before COVID, it was really hot and there was tons of development going on. And then, you know, COVID hit, the economy shut down. They've been shut down much longer than, in, you know, pretty much the rest of the world. And basically all of these development projects just went by the wayside and didn't get completed. And so people thinking that they had bought, you know, real estate investments and, you know, bringing developers in to, you know, help them execute their business plans. All of a sudden, there's just a bunch of empty real estate sitting all around China, not getting done. I mean, in a nutshell, 
this is this is my understanding of the story. And basically, um, now they're trying to dig out of it, right? Because it's, it's having a lot of implications. So I'm not even per se really talking about the Chinese real estate market right now, but it's interesting because the impact to the US market. So before there used to be a lot of competition from foreign capital. Um, there were foreign groups, right? That, right, Ellie? I mean, they would come in and they didn't even care what the returns were. It was crazy. It's like, they just yeah. needed capital, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say that they didn't care. I mean, they, they were not buying a, you know, with a negative leverage, but if most, you know, uh, firms were competing on a deal in, were around, let's say, 100 million, 100, maybe 105, if someone really wanted to be aggressive, um, they could come in at 120. Because for them, even if they, they made 1% cash on cash during the whole period of even five to seven, 10 years, it was much better for them than to keep the money, you know, in China at that point. And, uh, you know, I, I, we also looked at an asset in Atlanta actually owned by um, a Chinese family that ended up not transacting because they wanted, you know, a very high number. So they were not in a rush to pull their money out of the U.S. Um, and so, and we definitely see the impact in real estate. Um, I would say right now it's an, a very, very interesting time because when it comes to large deals, 80 million and above, usually institutions are buying those deals or foreign capital. Many times that is coming from China. These guys are gone. They're not buying anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, the with the deflationary uh, environment and what's happening in China right now and the liquidity crisis of a lot of the developers and real estate firms that are trying right now to restructure the um, the debt. And and essentially there's it's, it's a hot mess right now. Um, they're not in the market to buy anything, let alone in the U.S., and so what's happening right now, we're looking at assets that, you know, if Blackstone wanted to buy, the sell, many sellers would have preferred to go with them uh, because they know that they're more likely, we call it shorty of closing, they're more likely to close on time. Um, with one side note, um, that many times they cannot put hard money deposit, meaning unrefundable um, deposit after you close, after you sign the, the, the purchase and sell agreement. And so sometimes some sellers said, no, we want someone who is willing to take that risk. But I'm putting that aside, the, you know, Chinese buyers in um, U.S. institutions were all over those assets. And usually uh, Chinese buyers like A plus, B plus assets in, in core markets or in very, very strong locations. And we're right now, you know, we're not buying in core markets, um, but essentially those are gone. So what happens right now, there's kind of a vacuum in the market and groups like us that are relatively small, but can definitely buy, um, you know, larger assets are all of a sudden, you know, now I'm not competing with 12 other groups. It's three, including us. And, and, and we have a good track record. So sometimes brokers going to call us and say, Hey, match the price and, and the deal is yours or we have an off-market deal and and you know we don't want to take it through the full cycle because things change so so quickly um it's you and another group or it's just you that is you know is looking at the deal those the the foreign chinese capital is just gone 
right now they're silent. Um, and we, we know usually when, when you're in the mix, uh, when you're looking at a deal, they're telling you, yeah, there's another institution, another Chinese family that is looking at it. These guys are gone, uh, at least for now. So I think it's interesting um, to see what happens. And, and I would say in the broader, um, you know, the broader aspect of it is it, it, it might impact the U.S. economy because there is, um, you know, we're reliant on trade with China. So think about what's going to happen. Obviously, from my very, very narrow perspective, it's it's a it's positive that I don't need to compete with someone who doesn't need 5% cash on cash on a yearly basis, 12% IR, but they're going for 7% IRR and, and, and 1% cash on cash, it, obviously. But the, the in, in the broader perspective of this, the U.S. economy might, you know, be impacted by um, the the deflationary environment um, in, in China. So um, just something to think about. Um, and it, it the I would say that the silver lining is that there is some pressure on prices in the U.S. So when you don't have all those foreign Chinese conglomerates or, or large institutions, large families that are buying real estate here, um, you essentially have a better shot at getting an asset at a reasonable price. And we've already seen prices going down by 20 to 25 percent. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, a part of it is because the, these, um, the, the foreign, very aggressive overseas, you know, investors are essentially gone. And not many are, are willing to pay as much as they, you know, used to pay for assets. Yeah, I think it's also an interesting, I would call it a cautionary tell for really other countries to observe and watch too, as to what's happened in China and to how to avoid those same types of issues here. You know, if you think it's challenging to be a homeowner in the United States, I was really surprised to read um, that typically they were requiring people to have at least 30 to 40% down to be able to purchase even a single family home. Um, and so now, you know, their banks are trying to work with, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, obviously, uh, their citizens there in China and are dropping down the programs to be, uh, you know, just a 20% instead of the 30 or 40%. Um, but also overall on a, on a broader scale, when you think about how long the economy was on snooze and how those impacts, you know, have in impacted the their ability to, quote, restart the economy now, um, it's a very strong cautionary tell. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think is is something that we can all pull from that lesson and learn from that lesson. And it is something I will say, I think the U.S. did a good job of as far as keeping our economy going throughout even COVID. Um, it's definitely playing to our, our benefit right now. Um, so, you know, to me, that's really my biggest takeaway is I just look at it as a cautionary tell of why it's important to always make sure that we're continuing to move forward and, you know, not just freezing and shutting down an entire country, basically. But, um, you know, how it will all play out, you know, down to even consumer products and everything else. I don't know. We'll see. So, yeah. you know, in my opinion, I, you know, I don't anticipate that what's happening in China is going to have any type of significant impact on the U.S. economy. And if anything, I actually think it's going to be slightly favorable for us. Well, we'll, we'll see. 
you know, time will tell. Um, Ryan, do you have any closing uh, thoughts, closing comments before we uh, wrap this up? You know, we covered a lot today. And I, I think the my, my closing comment here would be is everybody knows we the, the, the stages of the economic cycle. And we're, we're not we're, we're just in a different stage of the economic cycle. So that there's always going to be some temporary headwinds. But if you look at it over the long term, um, both if you look at the public equity and bond market or into commercial real estate, multifamily, specifically industrial, um, th- th- we still have some outperformance. And um, once we get out of this, this, this pivot, we will uh, we'll find ourselves in a, in a good spot again. I think the overall thing that's important to remember is that um, rather, you know, rather where, where we're at right now in the cycle versus where we were before overall for the most part, we're all in a really great position. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that we can really take away from some of the things we've talked about today. You know, life is good and we're in good positions for the most part. And, and you know, our problems are laughable to a lot of other countries, you know, and even people. Uh, so I just, I think, you know, being grateful and remembering that really at the end of the day, we're in a very fortuitous position in this country being in real estate, having these things be the things that we're concerned about today. It's a nice life. Uh, yeah, I, I would I would second that. Um, I think it's great to be appreciative and um, to kind of get some perspective. Obviously, you know, for us, we're, we're obsessed about investors. We're always the first, second and third thing in our mind is how do we make sure investors are happy? How do we make sure they get their returns? How do we make sure that they're you know going to keep seeing us as you know their uh, partner of, of choice? So for them, this is you know and everything for us. Every investment in, is an, an entire you know um, world. If if uh, if I can put in that in, in those words, but yeah, I mean practicing appreciation is um, I would say is is very important um, when you look at what's happening in the world in, in general. Um, we're, we're in a good spot. You know, there's a reason why I left my country and, and moved, you know, across the globe to another country. Um, and uh, I, I think, I really think America is the best country in the world. And I, I love Israel. I'm always going to have ties to Israel. But America is, uh, it just gives you so many opportunities to grow, to protect your family, um, and to live, you know, a peaceful life, which is is not a given. So, um, yeah. wanted to thank you both, uh, Jeanette, Ryan, for uh, a great conversation today. Um, and to you, the listeners, I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. Be bold, be great, keep pushing forward, and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.